This is Hope and Dread. I'm Charlotte Burns. And I'm Alan Schwartzman. This is a program about the tectonic shifts in power in art. You're listening to the final episode of the season. You've heard from people who are making change and from people who are resisting change. Today, you'll hear from the editorial board that's been advising us behind the scenes on power in culture. In other words, who's driving the wagon and who's trying to seize the reins. Our three advisors are Dina Hagag, an arts funder and advocate. Hi, Charlotte. Jay Sanders, the director of Artist Space in New York. Hi, Jay. Hi, Charlotte. And Mia Locks, the independent curator, nonprofit leader, and head of strategy for museums moving forward. Hi, Charlotte. Always a pleasure. So, a couple of yes or no questions to start. At the end of this season, do you feel differently about who holds the power? Yes. Yes. I'm feeling the pressure of social, social desirability bias. Um, <laughs> do I feel different about who holds power? I guess so. <laughs> um, yes. Say no so we can battle. Okay, maybe I'll say no. <laughs> Another yes or no. Have we actually seen change? Oof. You mean in the year that we've been working together? Oh, Charlotte, right <laughs> from my heart. No. Start with the hardest possible question. <laughs> Um, ugh. I want to say, I'm going to say yes. I have a really hard time with these one. I, I want to say not yet, but I feel like we have all the tools we need, but not yet. We began this series by looking at new ways of dealing with American history, specifically monuments. We want to end it by looking towards the future. Where do you think we go from here? I think some of the problems have become ever clearer. I still see it as a period in which... We all have the opportunity to recalibrate and to embrace change without fear. I feel like people are using a common language to talk about what we have to leave behind. But I don't know if where we have to go is as clear as where we have to depart. I'm, I mean, re-listening to the episodes too, I'm struck by singular voices that are embodying and living and grappling with conditional change and institutions and the structures they're working in. So within those singularities, I see a lot of potential. Episodically, I see a lot of positivity for change, but it's hard to know how that functions systemically in our field. We've very comfortably used the word change from the beginning with this show. When we look at society at large and we look at the world, we're in a period of huge disruption. So we're wanting to embrace change because we, we see systemic problems that need to be addressed. But I don't know if ultimately this field needs to go through more disruption in order to embody the possibilities of change and what that means. I think we're in the midst of such a massive historical shift or on the precipice of that change. We have ideas on what this system needs to be more responsive to our times and to growth, but I don't know that we have clarity or can have clarity as to where this all shakes out ultimately. Re-listening to the episodes, I, there was something that Dina said about about really this work never being over, and something else that came up was like this allure of resolution. The episodes have been laid out in chapters and there's thematics and things, but I think there is like an overarching sense that these aren't a, B solutions, and there isn't a sort of new plateau to sit comfortably on. I feel like I've maybe come to understand that even more through this work. 
there's um, a, a real common focus on history, even if there's disagreement about how to deal with history, what's right, what's wrong. And yet there's not so much conversation, even within these interviews and within the arc of the show, about the future. And there's, a, there's not a confidence or a conviction about how to move forwards into that. Perhaps it's because people have outlined systemic problems and individual solutions. And in addition to that, some of the problems that we're discussing are so big that people aren't grappling with them at all yet. There's a real denial about certain issues. You know, we began the show in crisis, essentially. We began our planning meetings remotely from our homes a year ago at the height of the once-in-a-century pandemic and these worldwide protests around racial injustice. Now, as we're concluding, the pandemic's ongoing. There's a new war in Europe. There are catastrophic reports recently released on the climate and women's rights being aggressively rolled back in the so-called leading democracy in the world. None of this came up as much as you might have expected in the interviews, which really struck me going back through them. And so the question I wanted to ask all of you is, how well or how badly equipped do you think the art world is to confront the crises that the broader world is in? Just a small question. Just a small question. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to say, though, it was really interesting re-listening to all the episodes, specifically this past week. Even something Alan said earlier about how um, we're thinking about the problems in the art world at the same time that like the entire world is sort in every industry in every part of the globe is sort of unraveling. And so it actually felt for me like um, this kind of humbling moment to re-listen to these episodes. And I especially felt really excited about the artist episode because there was this like moment where I was like, oh, Art's one of the only ways we can deal with stuff. And I'm so excited to be able to have any proximity to artists that can help make sense, escape, sink in to whatever is happening. But the art world as a mechanism feels connected to too many of the same power sources that are complicating all of the rest of this, like, you know, climate, legislation, policy, geopolitical power, like all of that felt still so entangled. And it actually made me want to re-Google what every board member at every major institution does for a living and how much of their day is occupied with these much larger global issues and then how much of their time is dedicated to the arts institutions that they serve and just what is that balance for them. But yeah, it was really a trip to re-listen to them this past week. It was hard, actually. It was really hard. Why was it hard? I guess every day I, I don't know where we go from here. There is some shelter in thinking about that within the confines of your industry. But I think listening to my industry reckon with where to go at the same time that my human person is just so stressed about literally where do we go from here? Like, I can't believe we live in the United States in the year of 2022 and that we are worried about everything from, you know, forced pregnancies in the nation with the largest maternal mortality rate in the world, you know, or developed nation rather, all the way down to like, you know, increased detention rates. Like I can't even process where to go. So I think it felt sad because it feels hard now to think about where the art world goes without really having to think about where we all go as a species in a very, very big way. And I know that that was happening the whole time that we've been working on this podcast. And I know that much of the impetus of this podcast was what's been happening over the past two, three, four years but I don't know why something about this particular week really just was hard. It was really, really hard. 
to wake up every day and think about the future of this country and of the world. You know, I finally listened to your latest episode and a lot of the kind of nuggets that the artists shared and a few others shared about the importance of staying in the the gray zone of like uncertainty and also of, of making mistakes and how those are just, you know, for, for creative folks and for artists, like part of a process in a very obvious way, you know, artists are always kind of in that muckiness and that's not to, you know, over romanticize it, but it makes me think, you know, to your point about whether the art art kind of system as it exists now can sort of withstand change or even transform. I think that's a really key missing part, which is there isn't really space quite literally or even uh, organizationally. How do institutions deal with mistakes? Like how do these giant behemoths become more nimble, more, more like learning organizations? I've never really seen it done having been on the uh, inside, quote unquote, of institutions in moments of great sort of uh, distress or controversy or conflict or internal ruptures or what have you. I've seen a lot, you know, and at every turn, it felt like both in the room behind closed doors and, and for sure publicly, there really wasn't a lot of sharing vulnerability. I don't know. I mean, there's just a lot of kind of research and, and conversation, I think, in like the, certainly in the kind of like organizational psychology realm, but that this is really important. That's like actually the way you create a healthy culture. That's the way you have highly successful groups. That's the way you grow. And I feel like the art world has so much fear that I don't really see a lot of that happening. And I, I do wonder if we're prepared to not just give space to that, but like actually take the time it takes to do that work and share it with each other. Because if the institutions do that, they do it in a super hush-hush behind closed doors way. And I think it doesn't benefit anybody for that to be happening. So kind of institution by institution, I feel like the field needs to really share that, that learning and growth. So looking from another angle of this system, we're now in the middle of two weeks of auctions and several art fairs. And the art market has been very happy to get back on track with its transacting and with collecting. And I think for many collectors, art offers a welcome escape, particularly the work of new artists, while at the same time, the market, particularly as it gets played out at auction, can be numbing when you hear the numbers and you see what is sometimes the randomness of what does well and what doesn't, but underlying much of it is a sense of a frenzy, of a need for immediate gratification, whether that gratification is about embracing something and overpaying for it by stunning multiples or by rejecting certain things as no longer a place of value. So the art market, I think it's in for some very substantial shifts in value and how that gets exercised over the coming years. But for now, this is like a big marketplace that's looking to transact, transact, whether it's a seller or a buyer. I think institutions are in a very different situation insofar as they are in the middle of of a kind of battle or a field of vision where there is demand for change 
there is a greater pressure on institutions, whether they can rise to it or not, to change. And I do see both from the creative realm of the artist and the perhaps a, a little opening up of opportunities for curators, I do see an increased appetite and capacity to be embracing the less known, the less tested. I'll speak for Jay for a moment. He's working on an exhibition that will open in June that I think is looking at the histories of art that germinates change and that has um, historically and within our own times. And I don't know that such a show would have been conceived in a very different time than this moment. That comes out of need. Jay, do you want to tell us a bit about this show? Working on an exhibition that's looking at historical practices that kind of have existed pretty far outside the art world, that that maybe come from an 80s moment, Reagan culture wars, speaking back to one-way power, media, politics, uh, television, and how artists sort of jammed culture was, was a term of the 80s of like, what can you do to sort of disfigure and refeed power back to itself? And those things were happening often in more uninstitutionalized kind of renegade terrains. But maybe I'm personally kind of looking back to the, some of that work for strategies and ways to attend to power also in a moment where the kind of overarching political social system is so oppressive and kind of um, getting worse by the moment. But again, I think these are like micro, sort of like micro macro efforts against very overarching forces, but I see I see little breaches and things that give hope. But as all of you are talking, it's like, I know our field is like this series of interlaced concentric circles, and almost the more you know, the harder it is to ever imagine any part of it not interlaced to larger forces, forces of power, geopolitical forces, huge monetary forces, and the, that there's no outside, really, that we're sort of like living in a contingent kind of series of um, irreconcilables. Yeah, I mean, I guess I do feel a little like there's no utopia in any of this. That's an obvious thing to say, but it's like ever reminded. It's also how corruptible everybody, including we we are. You know, that's something that Hank Willis Thomas said that was, struck me as really memorable. You know, I think I was saying something a bit naive about artists and he quickly rebutted that and said, you know, we're just as corruptible as anybody else. We're often in exactly the same rooms as the politicians, as the, the people funding the politics are the same people funding the art. And so we are usually in those rooms somehow. We're very connected to those rooms. And I think that's something that people don't, outside of the art world, they don't see. They don't see that that power, they see art as maybe a pretty thing, maybe an expensive thing, maybe a lovely thing to do as a sort of leisure activity. They don't necessarily understand the connections of that of power, of how people in the art world are connected to broader spheres of power in our society. But I guess my question for you then, talking to Jay, Jay, for you specifically, do you feel power? Do you feel powerless, you know, within this, at this moment in time? I feel power because I have power in my role. So, I, you know, there's self-awareness about that. But maybe it's a scale thing. Like having worked at different scaled institutions, I see power functioning differently for sure. Yeah, that's a, it's a complicated question. I don't know how to really easily answer that. No, sorry, it's a, it's a toughie. Dina, Mia, Alan, do you feel power at this point? Do you feel powerless? I think I feel more empowered now that I sit sort of, I would say, not quite outside, but alongside institutions, much more so than I did when I was within, inside of them. Do you feel like your change will be implemented at the end of museums moving forward? Do you feel hopeful about its impact? Yes, I feel hopeful. I have to feel hopeful. But I think I'm also feeling very empowered and, and inspired by 
working with colleagues in a bunch of different institutions. Again, like seeing people have the actual capacity to work across institutional lines. So I do feel like part of what is very inspiring to me about kind of power and the power that we hold from where we sit is that it is so, it like multiplies in an exponential way when it's shared. Alan, do you feel power or powerless? Power is one of those words I usually avoid because I I, I always see it in relation to abuse of power. (laughs) And to me, power is a tool and not an end in itself. I think in the work that I do, which is primarily on developing art collections, many of which are forming museum collections, we've been really fortunate in being able to contribute to change in the way a lot of different kinds of art are perceived. I've started doing a lot of advisory work over the last year with artists and artist estates, and it's work that I see totally complementary to and not in opposition to galleries, but I thought it would take a while to establish that. And what I found is, in fact, the opposite, is that there's a great hunger and and a need for living artists and estates in ways in which to rethink what it is that they're doing and what effectiveness it can have and how to operate within, within a world that can be both powerful and fragile. So that's been super rewarding for me. I function within the art market, but my value system was formed in an art world in which there was no market. So the investment was much more of a um, of a small community investment. So I think for me, it's it's exciting. So I guess that's a sense of power to be able to apply values that formed me as, and see them as essential to this ecosystem and apply that to a market and perhaps have impact on how some people perceive certain art or re-perceive it. So I think there's a power in that, but it's just not a word that I think about much. Okay, Dina, do you feel power? Do you feel powerless? I feel power, for sure. I mean, I definitely feel power on paper, right? Like, I work for one of the largest, if not the largest, arts funder in the nation. I am privately and publicly in rooms where a lot of decisions get made all the time. With enough stretching, I think I could reach 85% of the people that power broker this field. So I for sure feel power. I think the thing that I actually learned from the podcast that I've been trying to sit with is feeling like I have power on paper doesn't necessarily translate to me feeling like I have power in my person. And I think one takeaway from me from the series is that People can't identify their power. And it's like really, really, really hard to to know that you're at the top of the food chain. Like people tend to find a way to always see themselves as um, vulnerable to some other force. And so I think lately I've actually really been trying to be like, oh, no, you have a lot of power in this industry. And how do you admit it and acknowledge it so you know how to wield it? And then more importantly, and I think it's actually something I'm struggling with a lot lately, And maybe to bring up Hank's point again, I can definitely feel the slipperiness of the corruptibility, like just how subtle it is that decisions you don't think you would have made before you had access to so much power or money or ease, which tends to be what power and money do, are decisions that you now feel like are the right compromise. And so 
I doesn't feel like I have power and I don't know that it's made me a better person. And so I think I've just been trying to sit with that. And one thing that I keep coming back to, and I don't remember what episode, and I'm pretty sure it was Michael Armitage. It was like a fleeting moment. He said, well, it really depends on who you're indebted to. And it was just so small. It's just a tiny moment. I think when he was talking about his Nairobi center. And I've been trying to think like, oh, if everybody in the industry could write down on paper for real who they are indebted to, who they do this for, like how would that change the decisions they make? And are museum directors indebted to artists or publics? Are they indebted to collectors and board presidents? You know, who am I indebted to now at Mellon and in other parts of my career? Like, who am I doing this for? And slowly that changes. I'm hoping maybe that one moment that Michael was like, who are you indebted to? Might keep my power in check a little bit. I know it's a really tough question to ask you all. Um, And the reason I asked you is because precisely what you just identified, Dina, through the show, it seems that people are not comfortable with acknowledging their power, with understanding they have it, that we spoke to lots of powerful people in the show in lots of different ways. And few of them felt at ease with expressing that or felt confident about maintaining that or felt it was being challenged or felt they couldn't inhabit it fully. And it was really striking. My sense is that that's the reason that the artist show felt hopeful is because the artists are really aware of their power and their vision. That's what they work on every day. And and they inhabit that space with an ease that seemed lacking in some of the other guests. And I wasn't sure if that was what power is, what power does, or if that's this moment in time, if that's its particular show, where the world is right now. And so I guess it leads to this other question, which is from your point of view, having gone through this process together, as we thought about power, as we thought about change, at the end of it, who do you think wields the power now? Who are the key players on the stage? How do you think about that differently now? Then you thought about that when we began this process. Would you make a different list now? I think it's fundamentally the same. But having said that, it's certainly, again, if I look at institutions, it's a period in which nobody wants to be perceived of as a true leader because that makes them a target. So being a spokesperson for a field is a massive challenge. And maybe being thought of as the authority on something isn't the most desirable thing. (laughs) I don't think that the key players for the most part have changed, but I think their relationship to their power is, however short-term or lasting, has been shaken. To go back to what you were saying, Dina, I mean, you are single-handedly with the amounts of money you've been able to direct directly to artists, for example, having massive capacity for change that is not only through the power of the money, but through the establishment through a very august foundation to have influence over how others approach funding. And I do think that most people go where they know to go. And so by opening doors to thinking of where need is and how money can be deployed can have great impact on others. So I think that the potential there is much even greater than the money that gets put into it. Do you feel the same, Dina, being on the other side of that? Yeah, I do. Can I say one thing about the people not being able to identify their own power? I don't think it's malicious. Like, I think it's human nature. 
to like seek out your predator more than those that are more vulnerable than you. Like, I just feel like there's this way in which we're always looking at people that are more powerful than us and what they do to us. Charlotte, the thing you said about like why artists can do this more seamlessly, I, I think it's just because very rarely do artists start with any power. Some do, but it's such a slog, right? Like by the time you arrive, in the instance of some of the artists we interviewed at least, like you've really been through some stuff. You've really had to start in a pretty powerless place and build. And some artists can hold that really gracefully and still talk about the corruptibility and still acknowledge like that evolution over time. Some forget it. We all know who those people are, you know, and then some do by some miracle start at the top, right? They either come from families that made this easy, whatever it is. But I think in the case of how money flows in this country, very rarely do people start at a completely powerless place and then evolve over time. And I, in, in my instance, like I did start in a relatively powerless place and I'm still finding that corruptibility very slippery, like very slippery. And I'm still finding that, okay, how do you bring lots of different voices to the table and find some compromise so we can move through? But that compromise tends to leave a lot of people out that I do feel to some extent indebted to. And I don't know how to reckon with that either. And so I don't know. I don't know what to do with that nugget, but going back and listening. And I do think because art is so fraught in this nation, anyone who engages it from any caliber of power is doing a good thing, quote unquote, no matter how you slice it, they are just making something available to a public potentially that wouldn't otherwise be there. So I think it makes it even harder to like really beat down that very few things are universally good unless you can hold on to the power that you're arriving at that thing from. But yeah, to Alan's point, sure, yeah. Raising a lot of money is great, but shifting how people think about the money they have is better. You know, and I think right now, you know, coming off of doing a lot of emergency relief funding work, both before my life at Mellon and in my life at Mellon, we're seeing a lot of it, but will it last? When sort of the state of emergency wanes, which it is every week, every day, we're feeling it less and less. And so I think, yeah, it made some impacts, but will those impacts stick? And I don't know. You know, I don't even know. We joke all the time that we don't even know if we could have made this podcast six months from now. That the genius of this podcast is we asked a bunch of people at the exact right moment. <laughs> and over time, people wouldn't have been as willing to speak so candidly and earnestly about how they were feeling about the art world. And so how do we get the impact to stick more? I don't know. Part of the reason artists are better at this is because they have to do brave shit all the time, like face their inner demons and, you know, self-motivate even when no one's watching and keep building even when they aren't sure, you know, when the next paycheck's coming in, et cetera, right? That that is like, I mean, that's leadership to, to a degree. And I think some of the voices of those that are quote unquote, the most powerful, you know, over the, over the course of these different chapters, um, one of the things that I feel like is sometimes missing, at least as I was listening back, is having the courage to sort of acknowledge the position that you're in as a powerful one based on, I mean, thinking about what you said, Alan, like people don't want to be the the leader. They don't want to be, you know, holding the bag because they feel like everyone's throwing stones and they are, but that's the job of leaders. You know, on some level, I think we all know that the way that the art sort of ecosystem works is that those with the most money do have the most power, but 
one of the things that I think you hint at and that folks kind of nod to and that I think we're seeing increasingly, especially over the last year, but even the past, I would say, five or 10 years, is that the people with the power are increasingly those that have the courage to step into it. Jay, who do you think wields the power? Has it shifted for you? Yeah, I'm grateful for our process that kind of from the get-go, this wasn't going to be art news that was only tracking the kind of high peaks in that way. So I think like in our effort to, to seek out people that are thinking about power and reconfiguring power, especially I think as everybody said with the artists, we see lots of counterexamples. And I think that makes me think about the sort of shape of ambition, which is heartening to see artists that for whom their their interest in being an artist is not a sort of automatic set of rewards and a set of ascension points that come with the kind of status quo of our field. And I guess I do find a lot of inspiration there. And this whole series makes me think about the question of what's really what's art's function in society. And I feel like almost everybody we talk to would have a very, very different answer. And that almost like their their self-image and configuration of what art is even doing or what is art um, is so utterly different that, that even that becomes like a very unstable ground to, to, to work on and to have any shared understanding of. And so I do see like hope in certain configurations, less hope in others. Anyway, and I think we're, these are all like first thoughts that aren't really going to land on a second thought, but I think we're trying to sort of like work through the soup of all this a bit in this process. You know, it's, it's really, really, really complex because it's, we all hallucinate all this value, but it's very real and we sort of hallucinate our positions in it, but it's very real and everyone does sort of think they're, they're in the middle. It's also an industry that people are so passionate about. You know, they're in this world, they're invested in art for, you know, personal reasons. It's not the most rational career choice for most people. What you're describing, that sort of centrifugal force of everybody's energy is is really interesting. There are lots of vociferous, emotional, intellectual conversations going on. I'm not sure how much they overlap. I'm not sure how much the communication is breaking through. It seems that that growth that we've talked about so much in this show has created a distance for you guys, who who stood out? Who who cut through? Who surprised you? Who did you think would say one thing and then they said something totally different? Hamza Walker and Kelly Morgan, who appear, I think, again and again in your episodes for good reason. They were so honest and you guys have been so honest. And that sticks out to me because, again, in the world we live in, People are freaked out, you know? People are really scared to say what they really think. They're afraid to tell the truth. They're afraid to say the really hard thing. And honestly, I would add to that a couple of the trustees, honestly. I thought that that Larry Marks and Fred Bidwell and I think it was Mark Strauss, like they also said some truthful things that I think are hard to say, especially for, for board members and for trustees right now. And I, I appreciated that too. After this show, I should say we're going to do these small episodes where we give some of the guests a little bit more room and Hams is one of them. I think the point we end that on is him saying, what are you here for? This is it. This is now like get in this. Like this is why we are here. What are you going to do? What are you going to say? And it just does cut through all of it. Alan, who for you has stood out or surprised you in, in any way? I mean, you all, we could not have done this without your participation or we could not have done this well without it. I mean, your experiences and insights were central. So I can't state enough what an impact your words have had on us and within the show. And Kelly and Kathy and Hamza, 
have all put their work behind their beliefs. And that's super powerful. And then I think about Sandra Jackson Dumont, and I see her so clearly as the next wave leader. I don't mean the, but one of, someone who is forging the path. There were voices of people I did not know that I found the most inspiring, and I could single out Lulani Arquette in that regard. And she just defined a a perspective and a way of being that I didn't have access to until I heard her voice. That made a huge impact on me. If we had all our guests in one room, if we had a big party, do you think they'd get along? Oh, Charlotte, in the art world, we always get along. I was going to say, of course. <laughs> which which gala yeah. are we at? Yeah. Depends which exactly. drinks, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. it's more like how much distance are they putting between the cute, you know, the cheek kiss? You know, is it like three inches of distance, right skin to skin? <laughs> They're the tells. Do you think they'd get along, Charlotte? You got to know them so intimately. It depends how long the party was. <laughs> I think as well, the thing um, I wanted to ask you guys is which changes are incremental and which changes are sudden. And the reason I say this is from my point of view as an interviewer, a couple of things struck me as incremental, as solid, as building work that a lot of people are doing, that you've just named some of them. And then there are these changes that will be very sharp and acute. And I've said to Alan at points, you know, my dad used to be a bookie. And I said, if I were keeping a book, I would start placing bets on which institutions I don't think are going to survive. And that hadn't occurred to me before we began the show that some institutions may just fail, may just completely collapse. Which for you have the greatest odds of not surviving, Charlotte? Well, that's definitely a party conversation, not a podcast one, um, I would say. But another change that I think is really decisive was interviewing Ed Vasey, the former culture minister in the UK, saying, I would return the Elgin marbles now. And preparing for this episode, thinking about, okay, what are the big changes that have happened? So many of them are overwhelming and apocalyptic, you know, in the, in the sort of world beyond us. But meanwhile, one of the cultural conversations that shifted enormously in this past two years is this issue of restitution. And that's a change that I don't think that we would have spoken about in these terms in 2018, in 2019. And now it's very quickly moving very, very fast. If we were running a book right now between us, what are the big changes you would bet on in the next five years? Do you think the museums will thrive? Do you think the market will collapse? Do you think everything will be returned You know, to, from whence it came? I think that the distance between boards and staffs will lessen in the next five to 10 years. Like I think the labor conversation happening in our field is unavoidable. I think it's getting louder and louder and louder. I think Mia said at one point, like people that just like now know their power and know how to really talk about it out loud. And so I cannot imagine that in a decade we'll be in this place where boards are just so far away from what is happening with staffs. And that's if people even still take these jobs at all. Like as we're watching folks really question what they need to survive and live a healthy life. And so that, I think, will happen quicker than some of the other larger incremental changes. And I agree, Charlotte, about the repatriation work. I'm, like, shocked by how fast the restitution work is happening and how, how much it's sort of popping up everywhere. And I think in 10 years, it'll be a vastly different landscape about where objects live and who they belong to and how they're cared for. The impact of the SARS-Savoy paper that was the kicker, you know, like people have been debating these issues for a long time, but a couple of people took some real time and real care and wrote a beautiful, not just argument, like lyrical essay 
on the meaning of this like long history, but of the possibility, like the art of the possible. We need to support those efforts, which are so behind the scenes and unsexy. Like they're definitely not the big exhibition that's going to drive your attendance. They're definitely not a hot new artist that's going to like make or break your collection. But I feel like part of the reason that that change is happening so quickly is because a bunch of people or even a small group of people had the courage and spent the time and attention to like really tend to that. And so it made all the the decision making faster and more possible. So me, what's your prediction for the next five to 10 years? I think we're going to see a lot of continued uh, turnover in leadership. I don't mean just of museum directors, but I think of, of I think the leadership of organizations and institutions is going to and has to look different. I don't mean that in the sense of just kind of racial and ethnic diversity or gender and things like that, although I mean that as well. I mean it more in terms of the skills required to effectively do that job are just different. And I think that from what I hear from you know, search committees and, and these headhunters is that they seem to be getting that. They seem to be mentioning it as part of the gig, you know, and I think that's going to be huge to see real empathetic leadership, future leadership is going to be a, a different job. And I think it has to be, but I think that's going to be really interesting. Jay, what's your five to 10 year horse? I'm very, very curious what emerging artistic practice starts to look like and develops as, um, in the, in the future, coming out of the last few years, just what, what and how people foot and present their creativity and their, like, reflectivity in aesthetic forms. Like, I, I guess I do think something is shifting and gonna shift. And I think, like, canon and certain value questions are just eroding. And it's like, art history is like a mood board at best, maybe, for young artists. I don't think it really is that much of a thing to inherit anymore. So... I'm excited about that a little bit, what the what sort of future configurations of art look like. But I feel like that's a little bit of an easy answer. But no, I really like that uh, idea. It's where my mind goes. It's like... Yeah, well, history's a mood board. That's great. Alan? Within institutions, I think the demand and the need will be for more immediate change for those that will survive or thrive moving forward than in other parts of this ecosystem. In five years... There are many ways in which we don't see change, but we see more disruption. And I think maybe in terms of art practice, that becomes more visible sooner than later. And that could connect as well to institutional change. What art is, how it functions within a broader culture, I think, is up for much wider possibility for change moving into the future than we might be able to anticipate right now. It just seems inevitable with these larger global cultural shifts that art and where it resides within the world and with, within life and within an economic world will inevitably shift as well. But I would also say that the kind of unknown factor which may be more visible in 10 years is to what extent the estates of artists have an impact. We have the first wave of baby boomers who are in their 70s and 80s. Some are no longer with us today. So I think that's a vast amount of wealth that can have huge impact that we can't begin to imagine. But I do think there are precedents out there that help to direct others in thinking about their giving. If we simply look at the impact of the Andy Warhol Foundation 
on funding within our institutions, it's massive. And the Rauschenberg Foundation, in a very, very different way in how it's funding real needs in the system for real change embedded within broader culture, is keeps the spirit of that artist alive within our own time and active as an agent for activism, in a sense. So I think there's a lot of untapped power. I know we don't have long, so I'm going to do a couple of quick fire round questions. And these are questions we've asked some of our guests. So we asked some of our guests about museums. We said, if the museum model isn't working, do we simply need to build new museums? What do you think? Can we reform? Can we rebuild? Yes, I think both. We need to improve on the existing, and I think we need to create some new ones. Yeah, I agree. I mean, at the end of the day, you've got great real estate and great holdings. <laughs> so there's greater opportunity if one can work within the institutions. But of course, there's always need for new institutions. That's that's where places like Artist Space comes in. I mean, Artist Space is probably, what, 50 years old almost? But it's one of the alternative spaces that's always reinventing itself with the times. If you think of Renaissance artists, they held a similar position to scientists. If you think of the way in which science and maths have reshaped our lives, think of the phones, think of the conversation we're having now, which has been propelled by mathematical innovation. Has art and culture ceded its place in the innovation triumvirate to science and maths? I think that maths and sciences are facing like a major misinformation problem. And I actually think one of the ways art is helping is it's like one of the few things to combat so much misinformation, whether or not people recognize that now, but they certainly will in a few generations. And I think we've already, we're already the byproducts of that. Things we learned about from artists that we didn't quite get from history books, from science, from maths. And so I think art's always innovating in that regard, and especially now in the 21st century. We've just talked about the influx of potential wealth and instruction on wealth that might create change in the future through artist estates. We talked about museums moving forward and the change it's creating, which is possible through the funding it's received. Is that where change needs to come from, from the money? Can the money fix the problems? No, the money can't be the most important thing at the table. It can participate in problem solving endeavors. Absolutely. It does all the time. But I think the money's not what makes museums moving forward excellent. What makes museums moving forward excellent are the curators and thinkers that have dedicated so much of their time, their expertise and their spirit to that thing. The money is just one energy source. But I think it cannot be the most important tool at the table. The second it trumps everything. And we see that in our industry all the time. And we also see some excellent philanthropists who know that their money is not the most important thing at the table. It's a tool. And they show up and they do the right thing every day. But no, we rely on money way too much in the art world and it's not right. Something that someone had said in the show was that um, art museums are just beginning to grapple with the need to take a stance, that science museums have had to do this, that natural history museums have had to do this, and that art museums are just beginning to grapple with this. Do you think that art museums, art institutions need to take a stance? I think art museums need to focus on themselves before they start talking to anybody else. I think stances can be hard. I think that can be that point of like, the work being real and long and complex means that sometimes a stance is not, um, is a kind of shallow stop point. Do you think you're seeing a backlash to any of these calls for change? And how do you deal with that? You know, I spoke to a museum director yesterday who said, you know, trustees are like, you know, do you think we can sort of get back to things now? Um, we've done a bit of work on diversity and do you think we can 
sort of get back to the original sort of mission. Are you guys seeing that? How do you deal with it? What would your advice be? I think you just have to invite them to a future that also sounds really great. I think that's what's missing is that people think that they have to do this thing because of guilt or privilege or whatever they're being told to do something. And that doesn't motivate people intrinsically. But to the point that was made earlier by I think all of you is if people, people are here because they believe in what's possible and they're excited about art and the future and they want to imagine being part of something really meaningful and you just have to make the case that that's non-negotiable. If you could talk directly to the listeners on this show, what would you point them towards in terms of thinking positively about change, steering them towards the hope rather than the dread? What would you say? There's more hope. There's, I don't know, it's like the one thing I'm is just more good. There are more good people, more good intentions, more good work than there actually is nefarious stuff. It's just the nefarious stuff so much louder, you know? So I don't, you're not outnumbered. Like you're actually part of a coalition of lots of people, some you know, some you'll never meet, that are all trying to walk into the future meal, just painted so good. Like I, it's just actually overwhelmingly good. And I think if you can keep your eye on that, you get through this, you know? Okay, so this is, this is a question for each of you. It's our last question. It's the last question we ask all of our guests. So for the final time this season, I will ask you, as you look towards the future, what do you feel? Hope or dread? Hope. Hope. Yeah, hope. Tired, but hopeful. <laughs> hope. There we have it. We landed on the hope in the end. Thank you so much to our editorial advisors. Thank you to our listeners. This is the end of the Hope and Dread documentary show, but join us in two weeks' time for a mini-series um, in which we take you kind of behind the scenes with some of our guests. Wait, wouldn't it be hilarious if season two was a reality TV show where we put all the guests in a house and they have to collaborate and me as the host? Yeah. It would be amazing. I would totally be the host for the, of that show. Yes. So good. So good. It would be fun. Hope and Dread is brought to you by Art End, the new editorial platform created by Schwartzman End. The executive producer is Alan Schwartzman, who co-hosts the show together with me, Charlotte Burns of Studio Burns, which produces the series. Robert Bound is our associate editor. Holly Fisher mixed and edited the sound. Additional research and support has been provided by Julia Hernandez and Ali Nemirov, and theme music by the inimitable Philip Glass. Glass.